Open God's holy word to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading 3, 1 through 4, 4. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares Yahweh? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you've sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. The spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Yahweh said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she's, all, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear me, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares Yahweh. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against Yahweh your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares Yahweh. Return, faithless children, declares Yahweh, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh. And all nations shall gather to it to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. A voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten Yahweh their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness, 
Behold, we come to you, for you are Yahweh our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against Yahweh our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. For thus says Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may we see the sinfulness of sin. May we own it, acknowledge it, and then being in awe that though our sin being so great, You are a God of mercy greater still. And may the promise of your mercy and grace turn our hearts in repentance afresh from such worthless idols to you, the God worthy of all glory. I pray that this would be the experience of both the saints here as we gather to repent anew and and cling to Christ. And I pray this would also be the experience of any sinner here that does not know you, that today, by your promises, by your word, you would grant them faith and repentance. In Christ's name, amen. Following the opening prosecution of Israel for her marital infidelity in chapter 2, chapter 3 opens asking, is there any hope then for this relationship? Can it be restored? Would God receive Judah back if she did return to him? God asks a leading question in verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, the assumption is that then she's divorced again, will he return to her? Now, such leading questions are forbidden in our courts of law. But remember, in this instance, the prosecutor is the judge. So there's no hope of this question being overruled. And God's under no such restrictions. It's His court. He makes the rules. Lawyers can wickedly use leading questions to establish false evidence. God uses them to bring into plain sight the evidence we are denying. He righteously uses this leading question to demonstrate their unrighteousness. With this question, he's drawing on Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4, where we read the word of Yahweh concerning divorce in a particular matter. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor, If she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, 
may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now in this, a plethora of questions arise that we don't have time to address this morning. I've preached a sermon on Matthew 19 where Jesus quotes this text. If you want some more answers, fuller ones are given there. But this morning, I want us to focus at this point, drawing out this text on the grounds given for why this shouldn't be done. And in Deuteronomy, there are two. One, it's abomination. Two, it will bring sin upon the land. It will pollute the land, defile the land. Now, those are quite vague in some ways. It's not unfolded any further than that. And so we're left to guess exactly what might be meant here. And so some speculate that this is meant to curb wife trading, essentially. While that's one application of what's being spoken of here, I don't think that gets underneath what God is saying. What does it mean that the land will be polluted, that it's abomination? I think the principle underlying this is simply this. Covenants are not meant to be entered into lightly, and they are not broken without consequence. And whenever such is done, it's an abomination before Yahweh, and the land is polluted. Where covenants are taken lightly, the land is polluted. If the covenant of marriage is taken lightly by any culture, any society, is there any hope for any meaningful expression, knowledge, understanding of faithfulness, integrity, honesty, loyalty? If you're unsure how to answer, look around. Whether or not he is acknowledged, it is God who joins man and woman together in marriage. It's a covenant bond that he forms. And unless one has essentially broken covenant... There's no reason to break it. The reasons we see in Scripture why this covenant could ever be broken, excuse me, let me just speak broader. The only reasons to ever violate covenant are one, as if that covenant was unrighteous and wicked and to be repented of. And two, if the covenant's already broken. The only reason you should ever break a covenant is because that covenant has already been broken. God commanded, you shall not commit adultery. To break the marital covenant is then to break covenant not only with your spouse, it's to break covenant with Yahweh who was made to one. And so, in understanding how God has led the witness you're prepared for this next question. You have played the whore, Judah. You've played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? You see, in covenant, God's people are expected to love Him, Him and no other. God put the vows in her lips whenever they made that covenant at Sinai, and He said, I am Yahweh your God. That was His pledge who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, here's their vow, you shall have no other gods before me. Or elsewhere it was rehearsed this way in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your might. All. Judah has been wildly unfaithful. Would God receive her back after her infidelity? 
And listen to the question carefully as the way it's posed. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? Is, Judah is acting as though she wants to return. That's assumed here. Judah's wanting to return, and Yahweh is asking, do you think I'm going to receive you? So the answer, you're being led by God Himself to give in response to this question, is a resolute, undoubted, no! And yet, seemingly, seemingly, everything that's been established by this opening questioning of this chapter, seemingly by the end of this chapter, it will be flipped on its head. Following this question, Yahweh calls for Judah to lift up her eyes to the bare heights and see. And now you begin to see how it's only seemingly flipped on its head. Because what you realize with this call to Judah who's wanting to return, God's saying, look to the heights and see. You begin to realize the kind of return that Judah is doing is a returning without seeing. The kind of returning that Yahweh says, I will have no part of. Do not expect any kind of gracious welcome to that kind of return. That kind of return is a returning without seeing. Again, these bare heights are a reference to the high places where they would worship Baal and Asherah in gross sexual immorality. Adultery would be the offering that she presented. And fornication the songs that she sang on these high places and worships and worship to these pagan gods. And they were so common throughout the land, Yahweh asked, where have you not been ravished? If you've read through uh, First and Second Samuel, you've read through Kings and Chronicles, are you not struck with how often the high places are referred to? Where have you not been ravished? And remember, this is the land. This is their inheritance. This is, as it were, the wedding chamber prepared by Yahweh for His bride, and she has defiled it. It says, verse 2, Like an Arab in the wilderness, she sat awaiting lovers. The idea is likely to compare Israel either to a desert merchant eager to sell his wares, or a desert raider looking to pounce on any who would come by. You see, Israel was not forcefully taken and violated. She forcefully took. She was eager. She pursued. And for this reason, verse 3, there is drought. Showers have been withheld. Rain has not come. You remember whenever Adam first violated covenant, the covenant of works, and partook of the fruit... God said, cursed is the ground. Whenever Adam fell, all that which was given to him as being one made in the image of God, having dominion, all that was under his feet fell with him into death and ruin. The promised land was an echo of Eden and an anticipation of the redemption to come of all creation. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And should she violate covenant, the land would be cursed and she would be driven out. Just as because of Adam's covenant infidelity, he was exiled from the garden. So too because of Judah's infidelity, she'll be exiled from the land given to her. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through verse 68, God unfolds in great detail the nature of the curse that's to come upon Israel should she violate covenant. And included in that are these curses. The heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are 
destroyed. When covenant is broken, the land is polluted, and that polluted land is cursed, and his people then are soon to be driven from it. And despite this, verse 3, she has a forehead like that of a brazen whore. Why the forehead? Because it's that part of the face that, does it not, expresses stubbornness. Her cheeks do not blush in shame. Her forehead is resolute, obstinate, in rebellion. And in this condition, in this condition, she calls out to God. Verse 4, My father, the friend of my youth. Do you not get the impression it's as if she's acting as though nothing's happened. She doesn't want to see her sin. And she asks, will he be angry forever? As though her suffering exceeded her sins. Saint, sinner alike, our suffering never exceeds our sins. There are only Even if we should suffer a day in hell, our suffering would still be short of measuring up to the weight of our sin. There are only two sufferings equal to our sins. That of an eternal hell or that of the Christ suffering in place of sinners on the cross. No other. Israel somewhat anticipates the Catholic doctrine of penance in this. As if we could somehow by our suffering merit mercy from God. Now Israel may intend to sound like the psalmist who cried. Will you be angry with us forever? Same cry. But he goes on. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Yahweh, and grant us your salvation. Now everything in that plea admits God's mercy and grace and desires Yahweh Himself. The problem is that Judah's actions here betray That it's not Yahweh she longs for. She just doesn't want to be punished any further. She wants protection for her promiscuity. Will you be angry forever is not a lamentation longing for Yahweh, but just escape from any penalty for sin so that she may continue in sin. You see, this is the way she speaks. Behold, you have spoken. She speaks well, but she's done all the evil that she could. Her pious words are empty and her wicked acts are full. Because again, where has she not been ravished? Sinner, do you see how wicked... How vile, how despicable and abominable false repentance is to Yahweh. Presumptuous repentance, deceptive repentance. Woe to those who faint repentance so that they may live another day unto their sins. Initially it may appear that we have a subject change with verse 6. An independent, unrelated prophecy dealing now more so with Israel than Judah. But we'll see just how intricately intertwined with the previous section this new one is. Indeed, verses 1 through 5 form a foundation that the rest of this passage is built on. We have a prophecy that comes here. It comes during the reign of King Josiah, verse 6. Josiah, you remember, was that righteous king who whenever the law was rediscovered in the temple likely the book of Deuteronomy, and it was read before him. He repented in sorrow so that Yahweh promised him, 2 Kings 22, 
Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. In essence, he's saying, because you've heard me, you've really heard me, I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. Josiah went on to purge the land of its extensive idolatry and pagan worship during his reign. But you note this, as you read through the life of Josiah, though you see the people assembling for a Passover such as had never been celebrated in Israel, though you you see all this worship, you're never given any insight, any indication that Israel repented, excuse me, that Judah repented the way Josiah did. You notice in this promise, it's Yahweh's telling, I've seen you, 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 all these promises. But then concerning Judah, he says, I will bring disaster upon it. And there's every uh, reason to make plain that her heart was not with Josiah in this because whenever he dies, it's back to their idols. Judah went along for a season, but after Josiah died, she went back to her lover's. It's during this time that Jeremiah is called to see the whoredom of Israel. You remember the kingdom after Solomon was split in two? You had the northern kingdom of Israel, which earlier than this had been taken captive into Assyria. And now we have Jeremiah, a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, who is during his lifetime to be taken away to Babylon. Now Jeremiah is looking back to the past, And he's to see Israel's whoredom. So, whereas in the first part of this chapter, Judah is being called to see her whoredom, now Jeremiah is being called upon to see Israel's whoredom. Israel is said to be a faithless one. It's a single word in the Hebrew. It's a noun. He basically says, Jeremiah, behold apostasy. That's Israel's name. Behold apostasy, Israel. And the word also has as its root the same word that is repeated so often in this passage, return. That's what apostasy means, to turn away. Her new name is Jeremiah, behold, turned away. Like Judah, Israel had played the whore, verse 6, on every high hill and under every green tree. And after she so turned away, verse 7, Yahweh expected her to return, but she did not. Now the anthropomorphic language, that is the human language that's being used to describe God here, The anthropomorphic language is not meant to teach us that God didn't know the future. He didn't know how Israel would respond. Boy, he really hoped for one thing and then it turned out another way. The point of this language of expectant longing is to highlight how vile Israel's sin was. That surely... After she is gone, after that which was worthless, then she would return to the God of all worth. Surely, after having turned to drink from the broken cisterns that she's made, she will return to the fountain of living waters that made her. The point is not to tell us that God is ignorant, but that Israel is foolish. 
Surely she would return after this. No. Why Jeremiah, why is Jeremiah being told to look at Israel's sin? The point is, as we'll see in verses 7 through 11, so that it might be made clear that Judah's sin is even more vile and abominable. All that Israel did, we're told, verse 7, Judah, her treacherous sister, saw it. And Judah not only saw what Israel did, verse 7, she saw, verse 8, that she saw what God did. She sees what Israel did, and she sees what God did. Sends her away with a decree of divorce. And the words that you have here, faithless Israel, treacherous Judah, treacherous is a bit stronger than faithless. Get at the roots more so it would be Israel turned away from covenant. Judah betrayed covenant. Israel took her whoredom lightly, verse 9. It's for this reason that she commits adultery with stone. That would be Baal and tree, Asherah. And yet, despite that, having seen that, treacherous Judah does not return. See, she's wanting to return, but not return. There are two different ideas of return here. You see how the passages are related now? The end of verse 10 takes you back to the beginning. Judah wants to return. What kind of return is it? Not one with her whole heart, but one done in pretense. Judah has been treacherous, and she tries to cover that up with treachery. Judah has been false, and she tries to cover it up with falsehood. She has been unfaithful, and she tries to cover it up with faint, fainted faithfulness, repentance. Sinner, you cannot seek refuge from your sin in the sin of false repentance. You cannot cling to Christ with one hand while grasping your idols with the other. You cannot be married to Yahweh on paper while giving your body to Baal. You cannot say the sinner's prayer with your lips while living the sinner's life with your body. True repentance is true. Meaning it comes from a true heart. It's not perfect. Just as our faith is not perfect when we turn from Christ, but it is true. Oh, indeed, we still struggle and fight sin, but it is no longer a longed-for lover, but a hated foe. In any case, the point is, in this, verse 11, that faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. The point is not that Israel is righteous. Her acts were abominable. But how more abominable? Those of Judah, as she looked up and saw all of her wickedness, despite that she had been blessed with the occasional righteous king, she looked upon all of this and saw it. And she saw God's condemnation of it. And sending her away. And yet, she persists in the same idolatries. And hear this. If treacherous, if faithless Israel is shown to be more righteous than treacherous Judah, then treacherous Judah has been shown to be more righteous than the apostate church. Because she has beheld not only Israel's whoredom and Judah's whoredom, and then on top of that, 
their rejection of the Christ. In light of the fuller revelation of the gospel, how great the sin of those who turn from the only hope of the crucified and risen Christ. Having seen how abominable the turning away of both of these sisters is, we're prepared now for the biggest surprise. God pleads for Israel to return. There are two pleas. Verse 12, return, faithless Israel. Verse 14, return, O faithless children. And there are a variety of promises attached to these two pleas. The first plea, return, O Israel. First promise connected to this plea. Verse 12, he will not look on Israel in anger. You remember according to the Aaronic blessing, blessedness means Yahweh lifting up the light of the, His countenance upon you. And more strictly translated, the exact opposite is what God is saying He won't do here. More strictly, it could be rendered, My face will not frown upon you. The light of His countenance will shine upon them. He will not be angry with them. He will not look at them in anger. He will look at them in mercy and grace. The basis of this promise is that He's merciful. He will not look at them in anger, for He is merciful. Do you remember whenever Moses beheld God's glory? The way he beheld it was God explaining the meaning of His name. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity. And transgression. And sin. Second promise here with this first plea. He promises He will not be angry forever. I will not look on you in anger for I am merciful. Said a different way. I will not be angry forever. You remember David rejoiced? We recently examined Psalm 30. That his anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. Or in another place, David sings, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Using the same analogy of covenant marriage through Isaiah, Yahweh declared, Your Maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, deserted, uh, of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. But this promise comes with a condition. Only acknowledge your guilt. If you are to return, you must see. And not only see, but own up to what you are seeing. Call it as I call it. Say of your sin what God says of your sin. 
See that you've rebelled against Yahweh your God. You've scattered your favors in this perverse worship, bowing down to foreign gods under every green tree. You have disobeyed the voice of God. The return that God pleads for here is the return of repentance. True repentance. And only such a return is met with such promises. It and no other. Now for the many promises that are attached to the second plea. Return, O faithless children. I believe the context makes it clear this is still being spoken of in reference to Israel. The the following verses that come after our passage make that plain. He's pleading with Israel to return. And these promises that follow are grounds, reasons, basis for the return. For, for. I am your master, I will take, I will bring, and I will give, and and everything that follows. So these following promises are grounds for why they should return. And as you read these promises, do you not just clearly understand that these promises are not theoretical possibilities? I'm pleading with you to return because if you do, I will. No, these are not possibilities These are things God is saying He will do. These promises not only draw repentance, these promises push repentance. One commentator writes, Repentance not only has the embrace of God as its goal, it has God as its author. As the New Testament plainly says, God grants repentance. And here you're seeing how He grants it. The promises don't simply encourage repentance. They create it. Whenever God commands repentance, that command goes out the same way He said, let there be light. In the preaching of the gospel, there is a general call on all who hear it to repent and turn to faith in Christ. But within that general call, there is the effectual call of God, whereby He creates what He commands. And there is light where there was once darkness. And a valley of dry bones takes on flesh and live. And a heart of stone is made a heart of flesh and beats with new life, the life of faith and repentance. These promises speak not of something God might do, but that He will do. Israel will return because as we'll see, God will turn her. The first reason is stated not so much as a promise as it is a fact. But it's a fact loaded with promise. I am your master. And the word for master is one that you see transliterated, just taken straight pretty much from the Hebrew into English as best possible, again and again in your Bible, though not here. Bell. I am your bell. Bell means Lord, master. Baal is not Baal. Yahweh is Baal. This is both their fear and their hope that they have bowed down to one who is not their Lord is their fear and it's their hope because Baal is not Baal. He's not their Baal. Yahweh is. The second reason is that, verse 14, Yahweh will take and bring. He will take a remnant, one from a city, two from a family. He will take this remnant and bring them to Zion, the city of God. Third, verse 15, He will give them shepherds. These are not like the shepherds of chapter 2 and verse 8, which we saw prior, who transgress. These are shepherds after His own heart. Does this not recall Yahweh's description of David? And so though shepherds in the plural are spoken of, foremost, no doubt is intended, is the great shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep whose whose food was to do the will of his father. 
And fourth, is a promise that must have shocked. They will not miss the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 16. No one will say, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Now at what time is it that they say such a thing? It is when they've been fruitful. It's whenever they've multiplied. And remember, Canaan was to be this echo of Eden and an anticipation of creation made new. In the garden, man was commanded, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That command was reiterated to Noah. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It comes again to Israel as she comes into the promised land. Be fruitful, fill. It even is expressed anew, if you have keen eyes to see it, in the commission to go, make disciples of all nations. What's anticipated here is new creation. And in new creation, the ark isn't missed. It isn't thought of. It's not remembered. Not going to be made new. Why? Because at that time, verse 17, no longer the ark is the throne of God, but the whole city, His throne. You go from an ark with restricted access where only the high priest could go, and only once a year, and only with blood for himself first, and then blood for the people. You go from this restricted access to the most holy throne of God. Because something has been rent, and a way has been made, so that God dwells among His people, and the entire city is the throne of His manifest glory and dwelling with them. The book of Ezekiel contains a load of rich imagery concerning a grand temple. But then, though so many chapters have been devoted to this temple, the book closes with a description of the city. And the final lines of that book are the name of the city from that time on shall be Yahweh is there. And then think of the vision that John saw. Revelation 21. He saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself shall be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then you've got to see now the Ark of the Covenant is no longer longed for And all this imagery evoking new creation, this Ark of the Covenant, the Old Covenant, and then you have this promise, this fifth promise, they shall know more stubbornly their own evil heart. This is nothing more than what Jeremiah will go on to unfold in chapter 31 as the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, to which pertain the ark of the covenant. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. 
and they shall be my people. He goes on, Jeremiah does in the next chapter, chapter 32, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will, that I will not turn away from doing to the, good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn. He will cause them to return in such a way that they will never turn in the new covenant. The vows that Christ makes in the new covenant are such that they everlastingly establish our vow to Him. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Saints, this is the new covenant that Hebrews makes clear we participate in. As we are in union with Christ, we're told this. We don't simply anticipate the heavenly Zion. We already participate in it. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and, the, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Six and finally, verse 18. There's the promise of the reunited kingdom, restored inheritance, this inheritance given as a heritage to their fathers. And now do you note in all of this that all these promises have been made to Israel. He's pleading with Israel to return. And all these promises involve Israel, but now there's this glimmer of hope. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. And still, because of the way it's stated here, do you not feel sense that the idea is that Judah will participate in these promises, but she's yet to participate in the same judgment that Israel's gone through. These promises are not laid down for Judah explicitly here, and I believe the idea is to communicate to them your greater sins will be met with judgment. But, there's a glimmer of hope here still. God will gather His elect, even those from every nation, to His land. All nations shall gather to it. Because the new earth is the inheritance of the meek. We see the promise made to Abraham swell to global proportions in the New Testament. Romans 4. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Heir of the world. And it comes through faith. And what this makes clear is that the repentance that's being spoken of here, the return that's being spoken of here, is that which must be coupled in light of Christ and His work now, with faith in Christ. Peter speaks of this inheritance rejoicing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Here, He's given us a new heart. He's caused us to turn away from our turning towards Him. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's the same heritage. He's given us a new heart, turning us to Him for this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you hear? You won't turn because He's turned you. He's guarding you in your faith. God causes us to be born again, no longer having an evil heart, turning to Him unto an an eternal inheritance where God will dwell among His people in an ending covenant love and the way He does it. Peter goes on to say, is that we've been born again through the living and abiding Word. And this Word is the Gospel that was preached to us. Because, Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Because, he says elsewhere in that same letter, that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Saints, these promises are not foreign to you. These are the very promises that have brought you near. Remember Paul wrote to the Ephesians? He tells them, he he speaks of them explicitly. You are Gentiles. And he says, you Gentiles were. You were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, uh, having no hope uh, and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You once were. You were separated from Christ. Now you've been brought near. How? Not by you. You've been brought near by Christ and the blood of the new covenant. His pledge, His vow establishes your own and turns you towards Him. You've been brought near. You once were separated from Christ. Now you're in union with Him. You once were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. No longer. You've been grafted in. You once were separated, or strangers rather, to the covenants of promise. But now, as Paul writes in Corinthians, every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. So church, the charge is simply this. Do not turn from Christ. Because if you turn from Him, Where else could you turn? Sinner, do you see your hurt, your heart turned from your Creator and your Lord? And if you do, if you see your whoredom, Acknowledge it. Call it for what it is. And hear the stunning promise of grace to such sinners. Should they repent, turn, believe, clinging to Christ. Knowing that in Him they will find unfailing, unending covenant love. May God use His promises now for saint and sinner alike to turn our hearts afresh to Him. He and no other.
Let's pray. Father, your grace, your mercy, your covenant love is extended to your bride, making her holy and pure without blemish and spotless. It's unmatched. It's unending. There are no words that we can use to convey the gratitude, the thankfulness, the praise for which you are due. But may we respond with hearts turned to you in love and adoration now. Draw us afresh to yourself. We cannot turn our own hearts. And so by your goodness and grace and mercy, we plead with open hands, give, Father, because you're worthy of glory and honor and praise in your church. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.